Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Jeff Block, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks, Paul. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. Uh, yeah, we talked a few weeks ago, and I'm glad we were able to record tonight. I guess we should mention that you and I connected through John Watts. Yes, my Aussie you know, buddy. John is a great guy. John, I go back wait, years and years. Um, he wanted to get into lemons racing, and he started off with us um, racing lemons cars. And then he and his friends formed their own team. And that's what usually happens. I, I form a lot of new teams in lemons by people coming racing with me, saying this is awesome, and then get their own car, do their own thing. So he's uh, he's a fantastic dude. Lemons. Tell me more about lemons. So, twenty four hours of lemons is a race. It's a spoof on Le Mans in France, and uh, it's an endurance road race like that. But the premise here is five hundred dollar cars. So you're taking beaters that are lemons cars. You know what I mean? They're just junkers, right. and you're racing the crap out of them. Some of the races are true twenty four hours. Some of the races are all day Saturday, all day Sunday for like sixteen and a half hours total racing. But I always say it's the most fun you can have legally with your clothes on, and I mean that. Like it is a, a hoot. It's an absolute blast. And the judges they encourage create, encourage creativity um, over just raw speed. So not looking for you know, Tony Stewart come out there, whip everybody's butt in some cheater fast car. They want people to get creative and make really cool cars, have really cool costumes, like theme it up, just come up with cool stuff. So that's what we love to do. And so when you say lemon, does it look like a, uh, a beater from the outside, but the engine's good or engine could be bad too? Engine could be bad too. You're buying a $500 car and that's what you have to start with. Now you can make it as cool as you want to make it as long as you're not making it faster in the process. If you're trying to cheat it up, you want to buy a crate motor and throw it in there. You're going to get penalized a ton of laps. So you won't actually finish well in the race. But if you want to do what I did, like take an old Toyota van, cut the body off, and replace it with a Cessna airplane body and just make it ridiculous, they're just going to love it. So you're fine. Okay, got it. We're going to come back to uh, th that whole thing and the, your nickname. And, and you've got quite a bit on the Internet. Your nickname is Speedy Cop. <laughs> uh, there's a ton on the Internet about you. If you ever want to see interesting and you being uh, our listening audience, if you ever want to see a lot of really interesting uh, four-wheel things that – I at least are lemon race legal, maybe street legal in some cases too. They are. Some are street legal. Yeah. And these are really over the top vehicles for your listeners. Um, for example, the upside down Camaro, literally a Camaro that races upside down. Um, the airplane car, the helicopter car. I've got a VW, I call it the trippy tippy hippie van. And it's actually a VW camper van that drives on its side. So just the absurdity level is really high. I love to do one-off stuff that no one's done before. I love to melt faces and just wow people. And this gives me – I'm also really overly competitive, so this gives me a chance to build something super creative and then race the crap out of it. No, that's awesome. This. All right, fun. so let, let's let's explore what led you to that by starting at the beginning. Where were you born? So I was born – actually uh, grew up in South Jersey, and then uh, I was 13. I guess moved upstate New York, and I was up there working on dairy farms and stuff, going through high school, and then uh, went to college in Florida and then Louisiana, and then went from Louisiana back in 2000 to D.C., where I worked for the U.S. Park Police ever since. All right, so, so – you so you kind of bounced around the, the eastern half of the, of the U.S. growing up when you were, whether it was Southern Jersey as an early teen or upstate New York on a dairy farm. How, how did you spend your free time? I was always building something different and fun. Um, we were a large family with not much money. So there's nine of us kids and uh, all 11 of us. My dad made like eight bucks an hour to support the whole family. So we had to make our own fun. So that's how we learned to do things, just be creative. I'd make a 35-foot seesaw by cutting down a tree and put it between a, and a fork of another tree, and we'd have a blast with that. I used to build tree houses with log bridges like 30 feet away, and um, we just we always had a good time. We always made our own fun. Out of nine kids, what number were you? Number two. Oldest number two. So yeah. you were leading the charge in a lot of ways. Yes. Yes. I, uh, I was the instigator. My mom would say I was a handful, but uh, you know, I was always like rounding everybody up to do something fun and cool, and they always enjoyed it. The older sibling, uh, uh, sister or brother? 
Sister. Yes. Okay. All right. Right. So yeah. you're the oldest boy. Yes. And I'm sorry to ask this. How many boys out of the nine? Five. Five boys and four girls. We had okay. our own ball club. Yeah, you you could yeah, play nine play. of us. That's right. Yeah. You could you could yeah. travel anywhere and play uh, baseball or softball game. And we did. We traveled all over. In fact, the whole family, all 11 of us, went to China for eight months on the mission field. We smuggled Bibles in from Hong Kong and Macau for eight months, 1988 to 89. Yeah, it was wild. That is extreme. I was a wild. smuggler in a communist country as a teenager. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What was, the, what was the idea? You were going to convert some folks? Yeah, yeah. I mean, over there, they're they're imprisoning Christians and burning their Bibles. And we were like, they actually hand copy Bibles over there at the time. So we were smuggling in like physically on your person, like you would smuggle drugs or something. You're smuggling Bibles in. You get caught at the border, you're okay because they take them away, give you a receipt. But when you're caught in the country, it's a problem. So we had to be really slick about it. It was fun. It was always a challenge. Uh, you thought it was fun. Did your eight siblings think it was fun? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? <laughs> The littlest, Emily, um, she was probably three or four at the time, and she was adorable little long blonde curls, you know, little girl. And um, they called her Gunjai, which means little doll, and they just loved her, like the Chinese people. Like they all have black hair and, you know, dark eyes, and she, here she is, this cutie with light eyes and, and light hair, and um, they just fawned over her. And you guys were there for eight months. Eight months, yep. Wow, and, and your dad or mom, they could pick up and leave like that with the whole family? So, yeah, they um, we raised a bunch of money. Um, they had their own business for a while, drying flowers. And we did the New York City Flower Show, and they sold a whole bunch of flowers, made some money to go over there. And our church helped us raise some funds. And like I said, eight months on the mission field. Cost of living over there is really cheap for us. Mm. And we were like, we don't do anything extravagant. We weren't in a nice hotel. We were in a little house that we ran out in the country. And um, our, our neighbors actually lived in like rice. They worked in the rice paddies all day and they lived in little bamboo huts. Like that was their life. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, it's amazing. Uh, so in a lot of ways, you uh, have learned a lot about mankind just by going halfway around the world. Yeah. I mean, you live in other cultures. You have so much more appreciation for what you have here. And people really need to go out and experience that because it'll just blow your mind how other people live and what we take for granted every day. No, that's absolutely right. All right. So when you were in high school, were you uh, continuing the, the building of things or were you uh, diverted into other things? No, I mean, I worked, but um, I built stuff when I could. I got my old, my grandmother's old car, and I didn't know at the time I had a unicorn. I had a 1967 Chevy Chevelle station wagon. I haven't seen one physically since, like literally not a one. I saw one on TV once, but that doesn't count. You know, in person, I haven't seen another. But girls hated it because wagons weren't cool yet, and um, it was an old rust bucket. It was like three gallons of Bondo in that car. I spent months in the barn just chicken wire and Bondo trying to hide the holes in this thing. Um, but it was a cool car because my grandma drove it off the showroom floor. It was a straight six, three on the tree, the old column shifter. Right. And then um, my sister, my mom both learned to drive on it before I did. So it was a family heirloom kind of thing. And by the time I got it, it was just not, not much left. It was just upstate New York, rotted the car out. My dad didn't believe in washing cars for some reason, and the road salt just ate it up. So it was a it was a cool car to me in high school. But like I said, you know, the ladies didn't like it at all, and it was a rough old car. I wish I had it back. I really do. Uh, when did you know you were really into cars? At a very young age, I guess my uncle, he has a collection of antique cars or had, um, and he got me into cars. He had a Model A with a rumble seat, and that's where the trunk opens backwards, and it's actually an extra seat. Oh. So they used to call it a mother-in-law seat because you put her in the trunk, you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, he took me when I was like five years old on a parade, and I rode in that rumble seat. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world, and I've been hooked on cars since. That's awesome. Uh, all right, so you got into law enforcement after school. Uh, well, actually, let's back up. Any stories from uh, college? So... I'm the usual college experience. I actually, this is back when you could um, haze, you know, freshmen for fraternity, you know, initiation and stuff like that. So I'm in Florida and I'm like doing dumb things to get in this frat. I'm eating, you know, a big bowl of jalapenos, which I was burning at both ends for three days. It wasn't fun. 
um, swallowing live goldfish and stupid stuff like that. And that school wouldn't let us play contact football. We had to play flag football. So I was actually really fast on my feet. That's part of the speedy cop talk fast, run fast, drive fast, you know. And um, I would collide with other people. And my last name is Block. They call me Blockhead, but not because my last name is Block. It's because when I hit other people and they would get laid out, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, dude. Like, let's find your front teeth, you know. I'd feel so bad. It'd be an accident. But, yeah, I would get in there quick, sack the quarterback before they knew what was happening. So it was really fun. That's cool. All right, so when did you know you wanted to get into law enforcement? You know, I was in South Jersey, probably eight or nine years old, and this state trooper was trying to find his dog, and I offered to help him. We looked all over for his dog, and I don't even remember finding the dog. I just remember him giving me his state trooper ball cap because he was you know, appreciating my help. And I wore that thing as a little kid with pride. I want to be a cop since. So, you know, that's all it takes to, to put that in you know, somebody's mind at a young age like that. And here I've been a law enforcement officer for 26 years and counting now. Yeah, uh, you mentioned New Jersey State Police. Their uniforms are very unique. Their uniforms are unique, and they're usually kind of hard asses. I mean, it is what it is. They're the most paramilitary of any police organization I know of. I mean, they make other states, you know, look like um, they're soft. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where they say they write their own mothers and stuff. But anyway, this guy was super duper nice, and I know some others that are super nice too. I just know they have a very strict academy where they they really get grilled. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good thing. As a citizen, I want my uh, my police officers to go through some tough stuff so they can be as good at their job as possible. You don't want Barney Fife in every patrol car, that's for sure. <laughs> Definitely do not. I don't. I don't want to ever encounter uh, encounter Barney Fife. All right, so you you finished going to school. Did you get into law enforcement right away? I kind of did. I was still in college in Louisiana, and I was working as a, um, a police officer there uh, in Louisiana. And then um, I graduated from college there and I was looking for a federal law enforcement job. And I was working for the time for Department of Energy at an oil reserve site outside of Baton Rouge and um, got the job for U.S. Park Police and went there in 2000. I haven't looked back since. Uh, good federal unusual, law enforcement right? job. A federal job basically, I mean, not right away after school, but pretty close to right away, it sounds like. Not that unusual. I had a bachelor's degree and experience in law enforcement, so it wasn't that okay. unusual. But um, yeah, it's really competitive. I mean, there's, I think right now it's between 10 and 30,000 applicants for like, 15 or 20 spots um, when they open up. So it's a tough job to get into. So you got to score well and, you know, be in good physical shape and stuff like that. That's, that's unbelievable. Oh yeah. It's very competitive. Wow. Uh, it's, I have a, a good buddy who's U S park police. Uh, he hasn't done it for a while, but um, I guess he did maybe eight years and then he's been local law enforcement since then. Uh he said you you can work in D.C., New York, and San Francisco. Is that still the case? That's or correct, that, yep. And, and so tell me more about what the uh, Park Police does. So it's a really cool agency, and it's very uh, historic. So it was started by George Washington in 1791, and uh, we were just a park watchman then. And then since it's evolved into basically we do state trooper-type work on the highways. We have parkways in and out of cities like D.C., and then we have like city police work in D.C. itself, and then we have like the natural or, or the national park areas – in the environs of D.C. and Maryland, Virginia, and, and uh, New York, and then San Francisco. So the Presidio and stuff in San Francisco, the, um, some of that area. And then uh, New York City, we have um, Battery Park and things like that, and Statue of Liberty, you know, Ellis Island. And then in D.C., we have like a third of the D.C. area. It's a huge geographic area. Why, why did it not expand past those three locations? So National Park Service, we fall under them. They have law enforcement rangers everywhere else. And for some wow. reason, the U.S. Park Police just wound up in those three cities. Okay. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, as things change over time, really got a foothold in D.C., it sounds like, with a third of D.C., and then a uh, pretty strong foothold in, in New York and San Francisco. And then think the winds blew in a different way, and other right. authorities, I guess, uh, laid claim to other parts. 
And there's so many places in D.C. where you're tripping over other law enforcement agencies. I mean, you have the FPS that runs around. You have Capitol Police and um, Secret Service Uniform Division at the White House. And we have so we have like outside the White House fence. We still have jurisdiction inside of it, but they have primary inside of it. So it used to be that Secret Service wasn't trained in doing crash reports. So I would get called onto the White House lawn when somebody bumped a presidential limbo with a Park Service truck or something like that. And I would tease those guys. Hey, I thought you were cops. You can't write an accident report. And they'd get so mad. But um, I think they've changed that since then. We haven't been called back in there for that kind of stuff, you know stuff lately. Yeah, but um, it's a cool job because we get so many different experiences, um, so many cool things. Like I've led the president's motorcade, you know, the president of the United States. That's a huge honor to me, you know. Um, I used to go when Bush was in office. I was in SWAT at the time, and I used to go with him every Saturday morning. He'd go out to Beltsville, which is a Secret Service training facility, like a half hour out of D.C., and uh, he'd ride his mountain bike. Um, he was a PT stud. People didn't realize what a PT stud he was. When he used to run on the south lawn of the White House, Secret Service couldn't keep up. They had to switch agents out because this guy is the president. He's not a young man, you know, and the young yeah. agents could not keep up with him. He was a stud. Good for but, him. Um, yeah, he'd go to Beltsville, and I'd be the tail car, and this is kind of cool. I drive a, a 454 powered Chevy Suburban SWAT vehicle with a big armored front bumper with a 12,000 pound winch on it. And that was my SWAT take home car, you know, and I would be the tail car, of the motorcade. Well, these were off the record movements. In other words, we didn't shut down every intersection. We would come, stop, come to stop at lights and everything else because it's off the record movements. So you had like three black Suburbans in the middle and he'd be in one of them. Then you had the other Secret Service nondescript vehicles. You had a police car in the front, a police car in the back, and we just kind of no lights, no sirens, just roll. But then we'd go through like 695 into DC you got five or six lanes to travel. I couldn't let anybody up next to his motorcade because they might ram his vehicle. Right. So I had to take that 454 Suburban and swerve left and right across all lanes of travel and keep anybody from going past me. And that's a really fun thing. I mean, it just is. I'm a car guy. I get to drive like a maniac. You know what I mean? It's just a good time. What was the total weight of that? Oh, gosh. That thing had to be eight, 9,000 pounds. Um, it was so a big truck. Four, four plus tons. Yeah. Swerving back and forth. And for wow. those who try to run up to the vehicles to peer inside to see who was in it, because it was clearly something going on. You know, somebody's in a motorcade. Right. We'd get out with M4s and tell them, get back, get back. And, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like freak out mode. But there must uh, tourists, be a PC in there. Uh, tourists leave their brains at home. I swear you get the dumbest people. They're probably perfectly smart the rest of the year. They come to D.C. and they just lose their minds. Like they just they just no common sense whatsoever. Like, you just pulled in a handicap spot, sir. I don't see a handicap placard. Oh, I didn't know. I'm from New Jersey. Like the big handicap sign didn't give it away. You know, I mean, this really happened. They look we had a lady. Jersey. <laughs> had a lady. I'm inside the Washington Monument. Now it's 500 feet up to the observation level, and you're inside the stone monument. You've probably seen the Washington Monument, right? You have little windows at the 500 foot level. So in that elevator going up, there's all the cool carvings and stuff inside, and the elevator slows, um, and the glass goes from cloudy to clear because otherwise the floors open by and make you sick. It's like argon glass, electrical current goes to it. It's kind of cool. So the elevator slows, the glass goes clear, and you can see the car base inside the monument. I had a lady straight face ask, are we looking at the inside of the monument or the outside? I mean, <laughs> these people are out there. You know, they walk amongst us. She she wasn't giving that a ton of thought before she opened Listen, never a dull moment either. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, so tell me uh, the funniest thing that ever happened uh, with you involved as a park policeman. Oh, wow. I'll have to think about that one. And, it, and um, you, you can start with funny. You can start with most harrowing, uh, most memorable, however you want to answer that question. So people always like my story, and I'll try to give it to you the, the, the short version. I had a car chase, but it wasn't your usual demographic. Um, this was a car chase with what appeared to be an old white lady. And it was a flat-out ridiculous car chase where she fled at high speed, reckless as all hell, and then drove at me at high speed, and then drove into oncoming traffic at high speed. So um, – I'm on the side of the road behind a disabled vehicle. I got my overheads on because the tow truck's loading up. I want to be safe, right? 
And um, I see in my rearview mirror, now this is, this is on southbound George Washington Parkway before the 14th Street Bridge, which is a big highway that goes into D.C. So that right lane is all backed up for like a mile, people trying to get into D.C. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, it's rush hour, my guys are either in court or called out sick, so I'm like by myself, I'm the ship supervisor, I'm a sergeant, you know, but I'm sitting there, nobody around. And I see this Explorer come flying up, slam on the brakes, pop the curb behind my police car that's sitting there with the overhead lights on, like hop over the hard curb, drive over the grass, drop off the curb, and go up the shoulder at high speed. I'm like... I got to look at the driver because she went right behind my car. It looked like an old white lady. I'm like, what is this person doing? Now, I back up. I get up behind her. And um, I turn on my – I have my overhead sign. I turn on my sign for a second. And she sees it. And you see her exasperated, throw her hands up, and she puts her right blinker on. We're at the top of this ramp now, merging into traffic. So she's going to pull over. No problem. She's reckless. I'm going to find out why she's reckless. All of a sudden, she floors it, and she's going. And the traffic is like leapfrogging, so she's swerving between cars, missing them by inches. And she cuts across all – it's like five or six lanes of traffic there – and hits the exit ramp to go back northbound the park we just came off of away from dc and i'm like i can't believe she's running like what is this woman doing so i get on the radio i give a license plate and all that stuff and i'm chasing her and i'm calm cool and collected i'm right on her bumper i feel like i'm in a lemons race you know i'm just staying with her she's driving that nice explorer i'm driving a ford crown vic but it was a quicker car so she gets up to where spout run parkway bears off on the left there there's two left lanes and two straight lanes if she goes left right away she's going to be in alexandria there's traffic lights and crosswalks it's rush hour that's all kinds of bad but if I can herd her and keep her on the parkway, she stays northbound on the parkway, and there's like miles with guardrails and stuff like that where she's going to be – I have time to get somebody else to me or get her stopped or whatever. So I get up alongside her. I'm coming up, and I'm like pointing at the shoulder like pull over, pull over, and she grimaces at me, and she swerves at me. And I'm like, oh, crap, like nosedive, panic break. She missed me by an inch. I'm telling you, it was so close. And I'll never forget this. I see an HD in my head to this day. As she's braking this Explorer, she's swerving hard left at 70 miles an hour. That's not a good idea in a tall center gravity vehicle like that SUV. So – her vehicle starts to rotate around. It starts to tip over, and she catches the right rear tire on the far curb line, which is a little low curb for the Spout Run Parkway there, and pops the right rear tire. And it goes from being on like two wheels about to go over. It spins around. It comes back on all four wheels on the road facing me, now on the right rear flat. So I didn't hesitate. I pulled right up, almost touching nose to nose, and I jump out, and I gun face her because I don't know what this woman is doing, but she's a maniac. She just tried to ram me. At 9 o'clock in the morning. 9 o'clock in the morning, rush hour. I said, get your hands up. Might have thrown an expletive in there. You do that under stress and police work. Sure. Um, and she's like freak out mode. She puts it in reverse and she floors it. Well, people back away from us all the time during these chases and stuff. First thing everybody does is turn around. Nobody wants to drive backwards. They turn around. So I'm running after her, hoping to yank the door open and get her, you know, get throw it in the park or pull her out of whatever I have to do, get the keys, something. And she just high rate of speed backwards on this flat up the parkway in reverse. And I realized I'm not catching this lady because she ain't turning around. So I turn around, sprint back to my car, gun in hand like an idiot. I get back in the car. I remember hooking the shifter with my wrist because I still had the gun in my hand, pull it down to drive. I'm holstering up, and I haven't buckled up or anything yet. I'm starting to accelerate forward because I'm going to go after her. And I holster up, and I look up, and she had braked, and now she's coming at me at high speed. And I'm like, what? Like, this is just going to shit so fast. Can we Can we yeah, say that on your show? Okay. You're good. You're good. So, um, yeah, now she's driving at me the wrong way on the parkway on that right rear flat. She's coming right towards my vehicle, and I'm like, that time stands still for a second in these moments. You know what I mean? That's moment of clarity where – I think things through in like a millisecond, like, all right, she's got a higher center gravity vehicle. I'm in this crown big. She's in an explorer. She's going to take out my radiator, my hood, deploy my airbags. I'm not buckled up yet. Probably break my nose. No biggie, but you know, it's going to suck, but I won't be able to continue after her. And who knows where she'll go from there. Or I can try to get out of the way and then I can still be in the chase. I thought about it for a split second and like whipping the wheel to the right, trying to get out of the way. I get out of the way. She misses me so close that I went back later in that day over and over. She had to have hit me. She was too close. She was sheet of paper passed my driver's side of my car and she had to have hit me somewhere. She never did. Now she's going on that right rear flat at a high rate of speed into oncoming traffic, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, George Washington Parkway towards DC, but in the outbound lanes. 
Um, and all my com corn collected has just gone out the window. I'm trying to get the mic that was in the center console to go out on the radio with. She's southbound northbound lanes. And the mic is now on the floor. My duty bag came out of the seatbelt in the passenger seat and fell on top of it. That's 50 pounds of gear. I'm pulling that cold cord for the mic and it's not pulling out. So I had to turn the, the, the radio in the car off, turn my portable radio, my hip on. I'm like, she's southbound the northbound lanes. Like all the cool is gone now, you know, all the calm. And it's funny because the lieutenants argued about it on scene later. Like, was I right for chasing her or wrong for chasing her? If my license siren are giving warning to people while she's driving towards them at high speed, I'm helping. But if I'm chasing her and pushing her, then I'm hurting. And they argued about it. There's no right answer. Like, you're wrong either way with this kind of situation. So she actually swerved left to, meet an oncom- or to avoid an oncoming car. And she swerved left on the right rear flat, right in front of me, swerved across all lanes of traffic, didn't hit anybody. Absolute miracle. Just missed every other car, hit the far curb on the other side of the road, and flipped her SUV on the side. So now she's on the right side. Chase is over. That's, you know, a huge relief on my part. She never hit anybody. Don't know how, but she never hit anybody. So I jump out and I run over and there's a pit bull looking dog in there barking its head off. I'm like, oh, it just gets better and better. And she's frantically, she's standing on the passenger door. She's a little woman, like five feet. She looks like an old lady and she's freaking out and trying to find something in the car. And I'm thinking weapon, you know, at this point, this lady's been so desperate. She's trying to ram me. She's fleeing like crazy. I don't know what's going on with her. So I'm going out again, right through the windshield glass. And I'm like, don't you move. And she turns around. She says, I give up. I give up. So um, I had looked in the distance. All the traffic stopped. They're all like, holy crap, police chasing progress coming at us, like freak out mode. Everybody stops. In the distance, probably 100 plus yards away, I see a silver GMC Envoy, just totally non-script, but it turns on strobe lights. It's got strobe lights flashing. I see the driver's door open and the guy running towards me, and he's an older gentleman, distinguished looking, gray hair and a suit. But as he's running, his suit jacket's flapping, I see a badge and a gun. I say, okay, I got somebody's backup. Somebody can cover her while I get her out. He runs up, says, can I help? I said, please cover her. I'll get her. I said, okay. He draws down. I climb on top and I grab her. And I'm, at first I said, are you okay? I'm looking for blood and broken bones and everything. She was fine. So she said, I think so. I said, the dog friendly? She's like, yeah. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so I reach down and grab her. Now you bear in mind, the vehicle's on its side after a car chase. It could burst into flames at any moment. You don't want to leave her in there. you know. So I grab her uh, like arms and I lift her up. And the adrenaline dump, you get these kind of things. Like you just get a lot more strength. I just pick her up, turn and set her down. He grabs her, puts her on the ground, you know. And I hop off the Explorer. I get her handcuffed. And she starts with, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I thought I ran because I don't have a license. I thought you were going to arrest me. And I'm like, you did what? Like, are you serious? So he says to me, I see like my backups finally rolling up. Here they come. You know, my guys are coming up in their cars. And um, he says, officer, I got to go. He says, are you sure you're okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you so much for stopping. He says, here's my card. If you need me to testify, I'm happy to. And he hands it to me. And I look at it. Deputy Director of the FBI, Counter-Terror Division. <laughs> that guy probably hasn't pulled his gun in 20 years, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was a crazy story. Like, that's not your normal demographic for car chasing GC. It just isn't. I mean, you know. Well, she was driving like a, a moron from the very beginning, right? From the beginning. And the, and the long and short of it was, it turned out she was a druggie, and she had oh. just made $30, and she was on her way to D.C. to get that rock. And, unfortunately, she wasn't willing to wait for it and went past me. And uh, kind of a sad ending to that story. She went to jail for a year. She pled down and got a year and um, got back out, back out of jail, got high again, crashed a single car accident on that same parkway and passed. So, wow. I mean, it sucks, but that's the way things happen sometimes. You know, I thought maybe she could turn her life around, just getting clean or whatever. And it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah, you would think being in uh, jail or prison for a year, that would help you get clean. But I guess yeah. – some habits are hard to break. Kind of a sober ending, but it's an unusual story. I mean, that's not your normal car chase story. I've had lots of, you know, crazy, crazy things happen in law enforcement. And that was, uh, that was pretty wild. That is, uh, yeah, I've never experienced anything like that. <laughs> uh, all right. So what, what about uh, heartwarming? 
like you, you felt like you really saved the day kind of thing? Um, there's been a bunch of those. You know, I always knew I'd get that call where I rushed the pregnant lady to the hospital, and I went 20-something years before it happened, but it finally did happen. That was cool. Um, there was a suicidal person on a bridge, and I went, and um, there was no longer anybody on the bridge, but I did see a vehicle nearby, and I thought that might be the person I went up and talked to them. And they were despondent, and they had been on the bridge thinking about jumping, and um, they talked to me for a long time. I, I've always tried to break down barriers. I've always tried to break down race barriers. I've um, always tried to, um, like, destigmatize, you know, people's perceptive perception of law enforcement because in DC for a lot of people we're the enemy and I'm a more, so I'm for some of them, I'm the wrong color and I'm wearing the wrong uniform and they're, I'm an enemy right off the bat. And I want to change that perception completely. I want them to see that we're normal people just like them, that we care that we're there for them, not against them. You know what I mean? And I've been pretty successful with that over the years. I've had a lot of people say, you're pretty cool for a cop or, you know, you're not bad for a white guy or whatever in DC. Um, this guy, he was, like I said, very despondent and was thinking about ending it all. And he and I talked for a while and I gave him my personal number and I said, listen, I am here for you, dude. You call me if you need me anytime, day or night. If you get despondent again, I said, I'm going to take you to get some help. And of course, we do an involuntary committal for three days, that kind of thing, because they're definitely dangerous to themselves. But um, he hit me up a while later and said, thank you so much, officer. You don't know what that meant to me. He said it meant the world to me. It changed my whole outlook. I got the help I needed. I'm doing so much better now. And it just it really made a difference. And that moves me. I mean, because that's why we're there. You know, we're not there to be buttheads and write speed tickets and everything else. I mean, 99.9% .9 of the officers I've ever worked with were just want to help people. That's why we take the job. So to get to do that, I mean, we do it on an everyday basis, but sometimes it just means more than others, you know. Yeah, I mean, the guy sounded like he was on the verge of taking his own life. Yeah. he, he um, So when you're in that dark place, I guess, you don't take in the big picture. And, I mean, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, right? Suicide is a huge problem with the veterans. I try to do a lot for veteran charities because we're losing 20-plus a day, and it's rough. So, like, my buddy's charity, Save the Brave, is another one that's doing a lot of good work trying to stop veteran suicide. So what's we try to do the, fundraising the for them. What's the website for them? Save yeah. the Brave. I think it's savethebrave.org. Okay. Um, yeah. Really good stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. That seventy-two hour temporary restraining order is uh, it can be pretty powerful at times. Yeah, yeah, it can make all the difference for sure. I mean, they don't get the opportunity to leave if they want to, um, and it helps helps to steer them in the right direction to get some help. Some people they go right back to whatever, um, especially with addictions and stuff like that. Like they can want to change, um, but it doesn't matter how much they want to change, they go right back to the old habits and things like that. And they don't get themselves in a better situation. We deal yeah. with the homeless in D.C. on an everyday basis, and it's usually the same. It's a combination of addiction and mental illness usually. Um, it isn't just, you know, uh, some people just lose their home, lose their job or whatever, and get into a financial, you know, dire strait. But some people, it's it's that mental illness and, and addiction combination that just puts them in a bad place. And you can Narcan them and save their life, and they get mad at you for taking their high away, you know? Like yeah. You, you were you stopped breathing like two minutes ago. Like your your heartbeat was gone. We are doing CPR on you. Like you, you're really mad at me right now? But they're not in their right mind to, to think clearly on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine there are various levels of not being in their right mind. Have you seen stories where uh, folks that are mentally ill uh, and homeless but are able to get to a stable place and, and mentally they end up being better off? Or is it just they're sort of doomed to being homeless and mentally ill? You see those stories. I just wish they were more common. We tend to deal with the same people where we know them by name after a while. And we know they're – I would know people's social security numbers. I've processed them. i arrested them so many times for similar offenses or the same offenses. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Some of them you see after you've locked them up and they're like, oh, I don't want no problems with you, sir. I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to be behaving. And then some of them have it in for you from day one. I mean, we had one gentleman we knew. We all knew his information by name. We locked him on a regular basis. He was a drunk that would get you know rowdy and cause problems. And 
he would say funny things that would crack us up. Like, I'm a black man. Don't shine your white light on me. You know, like it's nighttime. What are we going to shine on you? You know, I mean, but um, yeah, he was a character. But uh, it was weird because you'd see him sober and he was a completely different person. Like, you'd never know this nice gentleman is the same guy that you were fighting last night, you know? Yeah. But he loved to fight cops. And whenever we'd get his name over the radio, like, start another unit because he's going to throw down. Sounds like it was kind of a sport for him. Uh, drink a few and then uh, have an altercation. Yeah, tie one on and fight some cops, yeah. But in D.C., they're back out of jail before we're done the paperwork. It's just it's just the way – the nature of the beast, I guess. It's yeah. frustrating for us. Like, I've arrested the same guy twice in the same shift, processed him, got out, went back. Drive, I think that was just a simple no no driver's license deal, like no insurance kind of thing, and he didn't drive an illegal car and stuff. And we, we processed him, charged him with no license, and then we're driving back to the station a couple hours later, and we're following a vehicle, and we're like, isn't that the same – it's the same dude. He drove back to the station to get his property because his girlfriend, he said, couldn't follow his directions well enough. So we arrested him again. I mean, dude, if you're not going to learn, you know, we're not going <laughs> right. to. Right. Not going to out it. an hour and a half later. Yeah, that's just yeah. the way it is, especially now. It's gotten a lot worse. I mean, they just don't hold them. It's yeah, hard it seems to, to defeat the purpose, right? It really does. Yeah, that's why crime, violent crime is so high. Yeah, it's getting it's getting worse across the country. It's scary times. Yeah, super scary. Well, that's why I'm, I'm glad I live where I live. Yeah, me too. That's why we moved to Tennessee. It's wonderful here. Yeah, we'll talk about Tennessee in a second. Um, so did, did you ever have to you, – you've obviously drawn your weapon. Did you ever have to uh, discharge it? I have been fortunate in that I have not. I've come close enough. Back in the 90s when I was a city cop in Louisiana, it was 96, I guess, um, I was close enough that I was still carrying a revolver at that time, and the hammer was coming back on the revolver. Wow. Uh, we had a we had a little 20-year-old dealer that we knew sold crack. Um, he sold almond chips to a couple, told him it was crack. You know, it looks like crack. Uh, they tried to smoke it, didn't get high, got mad. He got his gun. She drove. They went back to kill the dude. And I guess they shot at him and missed, and he freaked out and called us. Now, we knew who he was. We knew what he was doing. But it's midnight in the hood, you know, in a bad neighborhood. And uh, we had this dark street uh, with the big bright street light overhead, like a little ways away. And um, he's telling us during this gray Hyundai, it's, she's driving a black female in her 50s, black male's passenger seat. He's got a black revolver. He tried to kill me with it. You know, this guy's in freak out mode. Here comes that same Hyundai right then, you know, and we're like drawn down on it, screaming at it. And there's the the light from the street light was glaring off the windshield. We couldn't see through the windshield to see in to see what they were doing. So we're just inching up trying to get a look. Well, she's got her hands to the ceiling shaking like she doesn't want to get shot. You know, she's like, I give up. I give up. Don't, you know, don't don't shoot me. And he's glaring at us like he wants to kill us. And he's got one hand he put up to the ceiling real slow and one hand between his legs in the dark down there in the car. And he's just glaring at us. And he's just like. We're waiting for him to come up with that gun. Like, I'm telling you, I already had the tension out of my trigger, and I was, you know, hammer easing back because I'm ready. And it turns out he's paralyzed on that one side. He couldn't raise that arm. And we oh. got up close enough and look in. Can you imagine if he'd have twitched and we just shot him? How terrible that would have been. I mean, been this is your worst-case scenario. And these things happen. I mean, it's, it's easy to uh, second-guess and armchair quarterback. We call it Monday morning quarterbacking, law enforcement. But um, it's so easy when you have all the facts to judge. It's so hard when you're in that situation, in the dark, in a high-stress environment with the guy behind you that's hiding behind you yelling, he just tried to kill me. He's got a gun. That's him. That's him, you know, freaking out. We found the gun. We had the guy. We arrested them both. We took him back to the station, and she, honest to God, said, now how do I press charges to get my money back from buying them bad crack rocks? <laughs> Spontaneous utterance much? I mean, you know, I mean, it was uh, – you can't make this stuff up. I really – we had one call where I had a, it was a call for a naked guy. And here's the thing about those calls. Usually people smoke PCP. It makes them really hot. They take their clothes off. And not only and, are they really hot, they're, they're, they're naked romantic, right? in the city. Yes. And then they're superhuman strength. They can, it takes four guys to take one person down because they're tearing their muscles and don't know it. It's absolutely ridiculous. The superhuman strength they get. Um, you get that call for a naked guy at 730 in the morning on Rock Creek Parkway in DC. 
And you show up, and there he is uh, on all fours, crawling around. He looks up at me, and I, he cocks his head to the side, and he growls, you know, like a like a wild animal. He growled at me, and I'm like, oh, boy, we had a live one, you know. And um, so I said, I'm looking at him. I'm like, are you are you a lion? He goes, hmm, yeah, yeah. Like, he liked the idea, you know. I'm like, okay, he's just mentally unwell here. So it, I was hearing the Benny Hill music in my head, you know. Um, we were chasing him around. Here you are, I have commuters. Now, Rock Creek Parkway is four lanes, but it's divided with grass in the median right there. Right. And in the mornings, all four lanes are inbound. The evenings, all four lanes are outbound to get traffic in and out of the city. So you have four lanes of commuters, on, you know, two lanes on either side of you. Everybody stopped because it's gridlock traffic, and they have a show now. You know, there's a naked guy with police chasing him around. And we ch- kept trying to grab his arms. He was really fast. And you grab his arm, and it's soaking wet. He's been rolling around. The dude's got grass clippings all over him, and he slipped right out of your grasp. And, I mean, this just looked ridiculous. You know, here we, we're doing this. We finally get him arrested in handcuffs. You know, we get him over to the ambulance. We're trying to find a blanket. And he's thrusting his hips at my buddy Mike and like, oh, he likes you, Mike. You know, I mean, he, people can't unsee this. You know what I mean? There's not enough eye bleach to go around. I mean, I, mean, I think some people would pay a lot of money to see that. Well, I guess there is that, yes. but uh, <laughs> Not, not yeah. a lot of people, but yeah. Not this guy, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this stuff, I mean, like I said, you can't make it up. I'll have to write a book one day. I've got thousands of these stories, and they're all true. And people will hear some of them and call me a damn liar. And they're actually all true. Like Mayor, oh, Mayor, Mayor Marion Barry. Remember Marion Barry? Mayor for oh, life, sure. five-time mayor of D.C.? Yeah. So he got he went to jail. Remember the whole bitch set me up thing, the FBI sting? Yeah. So he goes to jail, gets out. He wants back into politics. They love him. He's a rock star to them. So they um, he ran for city councilman at large. I want to say it was 2002. And um, I had arrested three crack dealers with a bunch of freshly cooked crack. So my uh, uh, coworkers transported those dealers to the station to start the processing while I followed their vehicle that they were in to our seizure lot because we'll get a warrant. We'll take the vehicle down the rest of the way because if there's, you have a whole bunch of fresh cooked crack, you might have a whole bunch more hidden in the vehicle somewhere. So that's what we would do. We would you know seize the vehicle, impound it, get a warrant, take it apart, um, that kind of thing. So I'm following this vehicle back on the tow truck. I have to say, chain of custody. Basically, I maintain visual contact with vehicle the whole time. So nobody can say, oh, defense attorney can't say they put drugs in it after the fact. Right. And um, – in front of our seizure lot, which is a warehouse district in the middle of the night here, you know, is this Jaguar with the headlights on, the engine running, the guy passed out behind the wheel in the middle of the street. And very, very, you know, so it started off with the old, um, do you know who I am? I'm going to have your job. You know, okay, sir, that's fine. I don't want my job anyway. And then it was, uh, I said, the dog's coming. He said, let's call the dog. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. But um, long and short of it, the next day, I didn't even arrest him. Like it was a minor quantity of narcotics and we just let him go. The next day, he's on CNN saying that I planted drugs on him and framed him. And I'm like, Are you? I was so angry because I'm like the most stand-up guy and the most, you know, my, my word is my bond. Integrity is so important to me. And this guy's saying I planted drugs on him on national TV. And I'm like, that's just like, are you serious? And did he, um, did he say sitting, your name? No, he didn't. He just said U.S. Park Police. I don't think he remembered my name. But, you know, um, the city council that he was running for city councilman at large, which is like the most prominent position because you could kind of roam around and um, – City council said, well, if you were, weren't doing drugs, you know, then you want to prove the officer wrong, just take a drug test. He goes, no, I'm just dropping out. That's it. <laughs> Two years later, he runs and wins by a landslide. No mention. You know what I mean? No mention whatsoever. So Wow. But uh, these are I the remember when he, when he was on the council again after being arrested for that. That's what? Yeah. Yeah. Only in D.C. Right. He was hugely popular. I'd see him walk around the streets and stuff like that, and they, people just doted on him. They loved him. So He probably had some redeeming qualities, I imagine. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Um, but uh, calling me a liar on national TV didn't warm him to my heart at all. So, you know, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. All right. Maybe. So let's talk, let's talk about Speedy Cop and, and your unusual cars. What was the first one you built and what inspired you to build it? I got to think back now. I've done so many of them. Um, 
Right, well, in, let's go early even, years. What was one of your favorites? Sure. And it, well, I started off doing like just ridiculous cars. Um, uh, cut the body off an Nissan Pathfinder, put big tires on it, make called a swamp thing. It would go anywhere. Big, basically, five passenger ATV. You know, before side by sides were a thing. And I took a Dodge Spirit, folded it in half, and drove it around. Um, the back half folded over the front half and slammed on the brakes and rolled it end over end on purpose. And these were like viral videos at the time. When viral videos were a new thing, it was Brake.com and uh, a few others, I guess. And then um, we did the Acura half car where I cut an Acura uh, Legend in half. It was a V6 automatic. Put the gas tank on the passenger seat next to me. So you literally just had the engine in two front seats. And I would floor it across my yard in reverse and just stand on the nose doing a wheelie backwards. And it was really fun. You know, and that's been done since. But a lot of these things I was like pioneering, you know. Right. Um, and then we did a pop-up camper race car in New Hampshire uh, in 2011 at the NASCAR track. So the race officials had inspected the car for safety the day before. And it was a, literally a pop-up camper body on a little Suzuki. And we made a race car out of it. It just looked like a pop-up camper. So the race officials were good with it. They said, oh, we need numbers on the doors because you only have the camper. The only camper in the race is you. So you don't need to put numbers on it. So there's plenty of campers in the paddock. So a race paddock, you have the, the track workers come in on Saturday for the race to start and stuff like that. And they don't look at the campers in the paddock. So they're out there waving the caution flags. Now, Lemons races, they have a rolling start. You'll have 100-plus cars on the track, and all of a sudden, the green drops and just balls out racing. Um, we're going around with the caution flags, waiting for the race to start, and I pull on this track in this pop-up camper. Now, it's got the tongue on it with the hitch. It looks like it only has two wheels. Like, we did a really good job of disguising it. It looked like a pop-up camper that came off the hitch somewhere and was coasting along. But it's driving itself around the track, and the jaws dropping, the eyes popping out, the flags stop waving, and the next lap around, everybody has their phone out trying to record it. You know, it was a great visual gag. Um, I know some some automobile writers wrote about it saying I stole the show from um, Audi in Germany. They were releasing a multi-million dollar Le Mans prototype car or whatever, and some camper in New Hampshire stole the show from them. It was kind of funny. But that was one of the first like face melters that we did, and then we followed that up. We did the um, we did the airplane car. Uh, we did well, we did some more mundane stuff like the Jurassic Park Explorer and um, the Wagon Queen family trucks from vacation. So those were just movie car clones. They're just cool stuff I liked, so we did it, you know. But, well, um, can we talk about the plane? Yeah, sure. How did you acquire the plane? So I looked for a long time. I was searching on the internet, searching boneyards in like Nevada, and I'm in Maryland. You know, I mean, clear across the country, trying to find a decent, intact single engine—not single engine, but um, sleek air, airplane fuselage. And I'm finding single engine Cessnas for ten grand that have no front cowling, no engine, no door, no gauge. It's like not enough plane to work with there. And I really, I knew what I wanted, like a twin engine plane with a sleek fuselage that I could trim down and make a race car out of. So this was my idea in my head. I wanted to do. And um, I finally said, let me start checking local airfields. I'm having no luck online finding something I can afford that'll work, you know. I went to the closest airport. All those months of searching, like five minutes away was this old airport. And the guy says, I got two old planes out back. And the first one was the same story, single engine, no cow, nothing. The second one was the plane I have now. It's a Cessna 310, which is a twin engine aircraft. Now, it had no tail, no engines, no fuel tanks. It sat 40 years abandoned. There was um, animals living in it and stuff. It was in really bad shape. It was never going to fly again. Matter of fact, like the feces crowded the floor to the point where I could take my finger and push through, you know, the aluminum was wow. that soft. But um, it was two grand. It still had the instrument panel with the gauges in it, and it was the perfect fuselage for this. So after 40 years of being parked and then it was going to be sold for scrap, he was buying, he was selling it to me for scrap value. Um, we turned it into something that for the last nine years, I mean, it's been on Good Morning America. It's It graced the pages. It had a centerfold in car and driver. It was in Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine. Like it's been all over the U.S. I mean – uh, Leno actually drove me the upside down car, but he wants to drive the airplane. He told me, and this thing has been, it's been all over the country. I've taken it to Comic-Con San Diego. I drove it around Hollywood. I drove it to Las Vegas. I drove it to the grand Canyon. I've had it at the New York city auto show driving around there and stuff. 
Um, it's been everywhere. I've taken it to the White House. You know, Secret Service didn't want to let me in. I had my badge. I'm like, no, I'm allowed in here. And like, well, this is an airplane. So it's a little, I get it because the last time a system was that close to the White House, bad things happened. But still, you can screen it. It's a big empty aluminum tube, you know. Yeah. But we have a ton of fun with it. I mean, you take a, something junk and you make it. We, we like to recycle, repurpose and reuse. You take junk and make it incredibly cool. And then what I try to do, like I've taken the plane to schools and given talks to kids. And I love that stuff because I love to inspire. I don't just like to melt faces. I like to inspire. Nobody taught me to do the stuff I do. I'm self-taught. So if I could do it, trust me, anybody can do it because I'm not special. You know what I mean? Like if you have an imagination and you have a will, like buy a welder, play with the settings. That's what I did and figured out how to weld and figure out how to fabricate. Figure out how to, I used to buy the manuals for cars and read them so I could figure out how to work on them. And now we have YouTube, which just tells you how to do everything. So it's so much easier now. But um, yeah, these kids like to hear that. They like to know that, hey they can do cool stuff too. All they have to do is think, use their imagination, their creativity. So that kind of stuff is what I love, you know, that's what I live for. Yeah. Imagination and, and will to, to get it done. That's really all you need. And, yeah. well, and, then, per, and then perseverance of the will, right? The yes. will has to keep going. Yes. Uh, you mentioned some of the things that you had to do at a high level, but is there, can you walk me through start to finish you finding a vehicle and then everything it took to actually get it to its uh, final state? So it's tough for my teammates because what will happen is, and this isn't a one-man show at all. We have a bunch of, we call it Speedy Cop and the Gang of Outlaws. The Gang of Outlaws are a bunch of friends that come over, just willing guys. Some of them have skills, some of them don't have much. They just have willingness. But we do this as a group. We do it together. It's guys and gals. Um, what's tough for them is I have an idea in my head. I get this thing in my head, this bad idea that I want to build something stupid, ridiculous over the top. And then I try to explain to them what it is and how it's going to work. And you get a bunch of face palming and why can't we just race the same car we raced last time? And I'm not that guy. I'm that's, that's, we've already raced it once it's done. You know what I mean? It's old news. So um, it's on to the next thing. And um, it's hard for them to envision what I see. And then sometimes it'll be almost the end of the build, but it comes together for them. Sometimes they can see it early on. And sometimes it's like, this ain't going to work, dude. Like we'll have arguments about it. Like, just cut fenders out on this, you know, Camaro because it's going to make it easier to turn the wheels of the car underneath. Well, that's going to spoil the look. You want the look of a car that flipped, not the look of the car that was made to drive upside down. So for me, the visual gag is everything. So, um, you know, but we we overcome, we adapt and overcome all the engineering challenges and we just figure stuff out until we make it work. Like um, I'll think in my head through how to solve a problem sometimes for days or weeks. And then I'll go out and buy the right vehicles to make it work. Like the Camaro was a Festiva and in my head, a Festiva would fit inside a Camaro. So in real life it did, you know what I mean? Like it's not, it, you get a small car inside of a big car. It's just a matter of making it work. You know what I mean? Like it's not rocket surgery, but um, yeah. Do you, have, do, you, do you have a lot of special equipment? No. In fact, most of this time I've just had like a, a regular MIG welder and then I bought a plasma cutter, which is a fantastic tool to cut metal with and stuff. And um, I bought a, a little mobile two-post lift. Now I have more equipment than I used to. I actually bought a, a 10-foot sheet metal brake. We haven't used it much, but we have it now. But um, this is stuff anybody can do with hand tools in their freaking yard or garage. Like the Camaro was three weeks in my driveway and um, just on jack stands in the driveway. I mean, anybody can do that, you know. Three weeks and 1800 bucks, and you make a car that's been on stories and, and TV shows and stuff around the world, different magazines. And, I mean, it's just been everywhere. It still pops up. It still goes viral all the time. It's crazy. And, and you're not making a ton of money off of this, are you? If I knew how to, I probably would be. Unfortunately, I'm not savvy with that. And this has been a really expensive hobby instead of being like a lucrative second income. But we're going to change that. We, uh, now that I'm going to be retiring from law enforcement, it's going to be full-time automotive stuff. I'm going to become a heavyweight in the automotive world, especially in the unique stuff. And uh, I've kind of built my brand over the years um, with the unique stuff. I'm going to continue with that. That's my bread and butter, you know. But I can actually wheel a little bit. I mean, I've hung with Randy Popes and Tony Stewart and guys like that on the racetrack. So, um you take that competitiveness and you mix it with the creativity and you have something, I think. No, that's really cool. That's, How cool would it be to, 
to make a living, uh, take care of your retirement financially, doing something you love doing. Exactly. It's been the dream for many years. And I mean, I'm just so passionate about it. So we just built my dream garage at 6,000 square feet. It's a giant second mortgage, really, but it's going to be worth it because, you know, I could work in it the rest of my life. My commute's going to be a thousand feet down my driveway, you know. Yeah. We've got 20 acres out here in Tennessee. So the house is on top of the hill and the, the garage is kind of halfway down the hill. And then up at the top of the hill to get down to the garage, I've got an 810 foot zip line. So my commute is really far. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big kid. I like to have fun, you know, so there's nothing that's, wrong with it. It's uh, maybe the quickest commute to work ever. And the most fun as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. We had some uh, friends over this evening and they were having a good time with their kids and all just taking turns zipline. And this is the best thing ever for them, you know. Oh, me it's too. Like, uh, parents with kids, uh, you're the best neighbor ever, right? With that oh, story. they love it. They love it. Yeah. Very cool. All right, so I was checking you out online today, trying to find pictures of that just to get a feel for the things you built. And you you had a uh, discovery, what, a couple days ago? Um, discovery? Yeah, a car that was in the middle of nowhere. You gave the guy 600 bucks, I think. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so it's a 65 Mercury Colony Park wagon. It was on Facebook Marketplace, and I find a lot of deals on there these days. It used to be Craigslist where people would just tell me about something interesting. I, I just, I, I'll, I'm the guy that will knock on your door and say, that old car in the back, do you want to sell it? I do that all the time, you know. But, um, yeah, 65 Mercury Colony Park nine-passenger wagon, and I got it for 600 bucks. It's rough. There's no drivetrain. It's been sitting for decades. But it's such a cool car. Like I'm thinking probably slam it to the ground, put a diesel in it with a stack through the hood and stuff like that and just make it a rat rod. But that'll be like a, I'll play with it for a few minutes and I'll turn around and sell it and use it to fund the next project because it's just one of those things where it's just cool to have for a minute. I'd love to keep them all, but the finances aren't there. You know, I mean, you turn around and sell it and you pay for the next one. So, Gotcha. I was going to ask, do you keep any of them? I've got, I've still got the trippy van, the VW van. I've still got the Pacer fishbowl, which is two Pacer back halves on a second gen MR2. So it looks like it's going no matter which way you're looking at it. And uh, it's a really quick car. It's really fun on a racetrack. When you go out there and you beat some uh, BMWs and Porsches and you come back in the paddock and they're grumbling about getting beat by an aquarium, you know what I mean? Like, it's just fun. <laughs> so uh, in, driven in anger, it's a really quick car. Um, I've still got the Cessna airplane. We actually competed with it last weekend in Bristol. Cletus wow. McFarland's a big name on YouTube. Um, really cool guy. And he hosts that big, um, it's called Cletus and Cars, but it's a burnout competition. And it was a stadium super truck race, which I can't wait to get into. That's right up my alley. And then it's a, a Crown Vic, like road race, kind of like a NASCAR race, but with all Crown Vics and all guest celebrity drivers. You know, you've got a lot of big names. you got um, Matt from Demolition Ranch and Roman Atwood and all these guys that are, um, you know, big names in the YouTube world and becoming big names in the car world now. And uh, they're out there racing wheel to wheel, having a great time. So we put on a good show with the airplane. We actually did a burnout competition with a 27-foot Cessna, and the burnout box was about 40 feet wide. And the cars that were out there that half the size of my plane were whacking into the walls over and over. And these are concrete Jersey barriers. I mean, it's just destroying cars left and right. And I was a nervous wreck going in there because usually behind the wheel, I'm fearless. But that airplane, we have thousands of hours of work and hundreds wow. of hours just in polishing. And it's so fragile and it's so long. And I mean, one touch of that wall and it's just destroyed. And I was dreading it. But I want to put on a good show for the fans. That's me. I mean, I, I want to always ham it up and, and entertain. So I get out there and I'm whipping that tail around as fast as I could. And we have 100 horsepower. It's a joke. I mean, it was barely making any smoke off the tires. But it was hands down crowd favorite, I do believe. I mean, hearing everybody talk about it the next day and then seeing all the videos that popped up online since then, people are just raving about the thing. It's going viral. So um, just doing a burnout competition, just whipping the thing around a little tiny box. And, you know, this this is a build that's been around for nine years now. You know, it's been in magazines and everything else. But um, yeah. it's a gift that keeps on giving because it's not only street legal. We put thousands of road miles on it. It gets 30 miles to the gallon. Like it's a reliable, economical vehicle to drive. And it's a face melter everywhere you go. You get, oh, my uh, gosh. 
I'll tell you a quick story. Atlantic City, years ago, my brother and I, and I was a seat in the back of it. So I'm driving in the front. There's a seat in the back. My brother's right with me. It's 11 o'clock in the evening. We're going to Atlantic City to play cards for an hour or two. We have a, a family in, in Ocean City, which is just up the beach from there. And uh, I'm driving the airplane. Now, if you get a block away from the casinos in Atlantic City, it's a bad neighborhood. It's all pawn stores and liquor stores. And uh, kind of the Drake's Society, you know, strung out and hanging out there and everything. Um, and we stop at the light right there, a block away from the casinos in this bad neighborhood. And this guy comes out to me and you can see he's fried. Okay. This guy has done a lot of drugs in his lifetime and he's clasping his head and he's freaking out. And he's like, did you just come from outer space? And I'm like, straight face. Yup. And he says, Oh my God. He's grabbing his head. That's awesome. And he's freaking out in the middle of the street of all the times not to have a GoPro. I mean, that's 20 million views right there. You know? Oh so God. he looks at the plane. He looks at me and he says, what year? And I'm thinking, what year is the plane? I get to ask questions all the time. And I just, well, I think in 1956. And he's like, you traveled through space and time. That's awesome. Like total freak out mode. My brother and I are crying, laughing, like it's the uh, best thing ever. And no GoPro. Anyway. Um, I don't think just, you should travel in any of your cars without a GoPro at all times. You're right about that. I'm just bad about it. I just don't think about it. I just go out there and, and do stuff. And later it's like, if we had video, that'd have been such a viral success. You know what I mean? Like, so now I'm trying to refocus. I'm trying to get video stuff. I'm trying to get stuff up on my YouTube channel, which has been dormant for years, unfortunately. We've got millions of views and we've got thousands of subscribers and we need to grow that to get make it become an income. You know what I mean? Because yeah. there's some money in building unique vehicles, but there's a lot more money in the social media and the, and the um, video and stuff like that. So we're going to do a YouTube show. We're going to... Um, like I said, I had to contract for a car show for a while, um, pull the plug on it. We could always revisit that, and we certainly have um, the ability to make it a great show. But I think doing it ourselves and not having somebody try to script the drama, because you watch some of these car shows and you see right through it. It's like, okay, they're saying their lines. I don't have the patience for that stuff. I don't. That's not my. That's not what I want to do. I want to inspire people and create and make cool stuff, and not have the the nonsense bickering and all that. You know. Do it all on your own, man. Don't don't bring anybody else in to produce it. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's your baby. You should uh, own it, start to finish. Uh, and I think it would. You, I think you'd make a really good living doing it, man. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go to your list. Uh, we had talked about an outline of or a, a handful of things that might be good to talk about. Uh, there's a mention of a male grizzly encounter. You want to tell me about that? <laughs> so I've had a lot of interesting experiences in my lifetime, and uh, I mean a lot of them. Um, some of them are just random as hell. Some of them are cool. You know, I've, I've actually gotten to rappel 600 feet down the face of the Hoover Dam as a SWAT training exercise on a single line rappel. That's cool stuff. Most people don't get to do it. The grizzly was my buddy's dad in Louisiana back in the 90s. He somehow had a permit for an adult male grizzly in a cage in his yard, a big cage, big bars, you know. And uh, we were allowed to play with it through the bars. We're not allowed to go in there. He would go in there and play with this thing like a, like a big dog. He'd roll around with it. This is a, a grizzly. It's 1,000 plus pounds in the wintertime and like 750 in the summertime in louisiana you know like this is not a normal habitat and his name was max and we would scratch him like behind the ears and under the throat and he would chew on your arm like a puppy you know but he would be gentle he was a big teddy bear he got my elbow of my right arm and i'm right-handed in the back of his jaw one day and decided to clamp down and i'm seeing stars it was excruciating and i know it's about to come off like this bear is now taking my arm he got a taste for it you know and it's going and i'm trying to stay calm because the last thing you want to do is freak out and start yanking when he's got your, your bone clamped in his teeth you know Right. I said, Max, let go, Max. Come on, Max, let go, Max, let go, Max, let go. And he let go. And I'm like, oh, thank God. I had the biggest teeth marks all up and down this arm you can imagine. I was like, all right, I'm done with you. That's it. You know, because it hurts so bad. He had the joint like in his back teeth. But um, oh. these are things like, eh, I'm sure it'll be fine. And then, wait a minute, it might not be fine. Um, hindsight's always 20 20 in it. It, it is. Uh, I, I probably would have gotten nowhere near that bear, but <laughs> you and I are different people. 
All right. So uh, you gave John Stewart uh, a hand up. What does that mean? So I actually put John Stewart when he had that rally in DC with a half million people in the National Mall. Um, I was at the rally to fight fear and or sanity or something like that. I forget what it was called. It's a long time ago. But he had a half a million people. He was the host. It was his rally on the National Mall in DC. And there was a lot of celebrities and stuff there. And I'm a horse mounted officer at that time. Um, so I'm in the backstage area on my horse and we see John Stewart and we say, you know, hey, would you like to get on the horse, take a picture? Because we used to be able to do that. He used to say, hey, hop on the horse, take a picture to people. And he's like, I, I can't really. Like he lit up like a little kid. He's only, he's maybe five, six, I would say. He's, he's um, a little guy. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I gave him a boost up, you know, and he hopped up on my horse and he was just grinning ear to ear, happy as could be, he took pictures with his stuff like that. And it's just a really cool experience because I mean, I've watched The Daily Show for years and stuff. He's a, he's a great comic, great actor and all. And uh, to actually meet him and get him, like I put other celebrities on my horse, Michelle Kwan and, and people like that over the years, um, actors, actors and actresses and stuff. It's funny because I put some NBA all NBA All Stars on my horse. Um, was it Grant Hill and Chris Paul? Grant just said, "Don't hurt me," and Chris was nervous as hell. I'm like, "Dude, you jump higher than this for a living. Like, what's wrong?" Because he just wasn't comfortable on the horse at all. But I mean, we just take it for granted. We do it day in and day out. And for people, that's way out of their comfort zone, you know? Yeah, horse is probably a new thing for uh, those two guys. Yeah. All right, uh, I have to ask about. Uh, well, hold on. Yeah, I sent I, you I a bunch to, of just random factoids. So yeah, I, I was definitely going to ask you about your Mary and Mary encounter. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. <laughs> why, why, why do you have let metal in both your legs? So car accident back in '89 broke my right femur. I've got. Pin, uh, pins the full length of my right femur and then church league softball, which actually takes out a lot of people. Cause we think we're young and athletic and we're playing church league softball and we're actually middle-aged and slowing down. But anyway, um, I slid into home plate again. I was really quick on my feet. I was safe under the tag as the, you know, the glove came down. I slid in my cleat caught the edge of the plate and everybody heard pop, pop and both my leg bones snapped. And so they're like safe. And I'm like, ow. And they're like, you all right. I'm like, no, no, they, can you walk it off? And I get up and like my foot's upside down and backwards. I'm like, Oh, that can't be good. You know? So I've got titanium in my left ankle as well. So it slows me down a little bit on rainy days, you know. Yeah. Do you, do you uh, the metal detectors sound off when you walk through? <laughs> Sometimes they do, but at least my scrap value is going up, right? <laughs> nice. Uh, all right. So you had an encounter with Sharon Osborne and potentially one with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Tell me about so that. So I'm on the horse. I'm on the National Mall. I see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he's talking to some people. And again, there's a bunch of celebrities. He's still backstage at that John Stewart rally. And um, I wanted to take a picture with Kareem. And I'm like eye to eye with the dude. And I'm on the horse and the horse is fairly tall. You know what I mean? Like this guy is so tall. It's crazy. I'm just normal height. I'm 5'9", but up there on the horse, you know, I usually tower over everybody. And um, here he is. You know, I'm going to take a picture with him. And he's like eye to eye with me. And I'm waiting. He's talking to a kid. And I'm going to wait and be patient. And Sharon Osborne comes up and she's an absolute sweetheart. She really is. And she talked my ear off for like 10 minutes. And I just had really engaging conversation, really cool lady. And then I look up and he's long gone. I'm like, oh, well. So I said, you want to get on the horse, take a picture? She's like, no, but I'll take one with you anyway. So she just came up the next to the horse, took the picture. But real sweetheart. Yeah, I, I think I'd rather have the picture with Kareem, but that's a great picture to have with Sharon Osborne. Yeah. I, I'm the like, I have is she's a really sweet person. How does she? How is she married to Ozzy? I just don't get it. <laughs> the that's more of a charm, I think, right? Maybe so. I don't know. All right, you you, uh, you had an encounter with Bob Barker on the set of Price is Right. 
Yeah, I mean, just normal touristy thing when you're on the prices right. And Bob Barker used to come down um, the aisle and he would high five everybody on his way down. So high fived him. We're on the third row. And my brother actually got picked and went up on stage. Now, I grew up watching the prices right. I love the show and I'm competitive. So I'm always like, try, I would research prices to try to get stuff right just watching the TV. So now that I'm there and have a chance of being picked, like I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm up to speed on everything. So I told my brother who doesn't watch the show, if you get picked, turn around, look at me. I'll tell you what to bid. So he gets up there and he's all excited. He forgets to look at me and he bids the wrong amount. You know, he doesn't get the first thing. He bids on the second thing. He turns around, looks at me, and everybody else had already bid. I said, one dollar. He said, dollar. Yeah. So he bid a dollar. So he got, he won that. Uh, it was like a shed or something, like fifty-four hundred dollars worth of stuff. And then um, he's in the showcase showdown, or not in the showcase showdown, but he had to spin the wheel, you know. So he grabs it, and he spins it real hard, and Bob says something about him, you know, almost breaking it or whatever. And then um, he's up there like hoping to win it. He gets like 80 cents. Somebody else gets like 85. So he's out. So he's down now. So then we're, we're standing, we're sitting there. We're in the third row still. And they come to the actual showcase showdown at the end of the show. And there was a guy and a lady and the lady bid her amount. And then the guy looked around the audience. I locked eyes with him. I said, 18,000. And he said, 18,000. I said, yes, 18,000. He said, 18,000, Bob. So he won. So he actually thanked me afterwards because I gave him the right amount. But um, I would have loved to have been on the show myself. But yeah, Bob was a cool guy. Then I went back once more with my sister and um, Drew Carey was doing it. And um, he was really funny, but I don't think he was getting along too well with the, the network at the time because mm. in the intermissions, he, he had some things to say. So uh, it was really, fun. oh yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he was a bit sore about something. He's still doing it though. I guess I they made is, up. Yeah. yeah. I haven't watched the show in a while now. I just don't have time for that stuff. Is it hard to get into that show or, or pretty easy? It was easy the second time. It was hard the first time. It was one of those deals where you get in line the day before and you're in the street all night, literally standing in this line, hoping you make the cut. You know what I mean? And then now I think it's an online deal. Oh, you try, yeah. to, try to actually, it's like a raffle system or something where you try to get tickets. Yeah, wow. I'm a big fan of uh, this next guy. I'm very curious how you made him laugh, Chris Tucker. <laughs> so um, we were at an event. I think it was an MLK um annual MLK speech, you know, I have a dream speech memorial event um, that still goes on. And um, it was a really cool event. And in that event, I actually got to walk Coretta Scott King, you know, mm. to her car arm in arm. She was, you know, frail older lady. And um, it took a while to get there. We took our time and she was just as nice as could be. Just talk my ear off, get her to her car. I mean, that was a huge honor for me, huge honor to get to walk her to her car. And I get back and uh, I was going through like the gate we had there and Chris Tucker was coming out. And I said, Chris Tucker. And he like froze, like, like he's in trouble. Like police say his name. And I said, never mess with a black man's radio. Remember Rush Hour, Jackie Chan. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he burst out laughing. His boys all burst out laughing because they're like, oh, crap, you know, cop, what's he want? And then uh, you know, he thought that was funny. It is but, funny. Anyway. No, well, I mean, Chris Tucker's done a few things, but uh, those Rush Hour movies yeah. like, took him to the moon. Kind he's of a riot. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, well, he, he, he and Jackie Chan together especially, yeah. Yeah. You're going to say something? I was going to say, I met Chris Rock as well. So two of the, the funnier Chris's. <laughs> yeah, Rock's hilarious and now uber famous because of uh, one slap. One slap, which was an exact like word for word repeat of a prior slap. But yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Stage. Seven minute primetime interview with South African National Radio. How did that happen? That was after the plane came out and it was like viral and people were talking about it, stuff like that. And I get this call at South African National Radio. They would like to interview me. But the problem was their prime time was like 2.30 in the morning, our time, or 4 in the morning. It was some crazy hour in the wee hours. And um, they're like, you're going to have to be, you know, not just awake for this, but like ready to talk for, at length about your, your creation. And I'm like, sure, no problem. You know, drink a whole bunch of coffee or whatever and just yeah. set the alarm. Um, and it was a really fun interview. It's just really like that's a huge honor for some 
cop that just cobbles stuff together in his driveway or in his garage with his friends to get to do things like that. I mean, to me, that's just, that's just the coolest thing ever. That's super cool, man. Thanks. Uh, all right. Last one. And I, for some reason that this one really catches my attention, it's not famous people, but it, it does make you who you are. Uh, when you were a kid, did you have a job uh, involving cows? I worked on dairy farms. Yeah. Upstate New York. Did, uh, you, had, you had to take your bike a half mile and then so, cows, yeah. how much did you make? So this was, I was making $75 every two weeks and it was almost full time. Um, it was a lot of hours every week and I would get up uh, like 4.30 in the morning and ride my BMX in the dark. You know, I was 14 years old riding down to the neighbor's house a half mile away. Now this was the closest neighbor in upstate New York. This is out in remote upstate New York. Um, we were at a half mile in the dark to this neighbor's barn and get these 60 head, head of cow in there, get them, get started milking them before he'd get out of bed sometimes, you know? And I just thought I was Oprah rich cause I was making $75 every two weeks. Like I didn't have to spend that much money. You know what I mean? Cause bear in mind, family of 11 with my dad making eight bucks an hour, we didn't have much. So now all right. of a sudden I had money. I could go buy things that I wanted to actually build things with, you know, buy go-kart parts and build a go-kart, things like that. So um, cool experience, but um, you learn a work ethic. I mean, you, if you don't have respect for dairy farmers, you should, because those guys never get a vacation. They have, I mean, they're milking year round. They don't get to go anywhere or do anything. And then it's, they're not making much money at it. It's, it's the most stressful and difficult, you know, physically job you can imagine. My hat's off to those guys. Yeah, my my uncle through marriage did that for a really really long time. Humble, hardest working guy I knew. Um, and look, there, there are people. You and I are roughly the same age. There are people our age that have no, can't fathom how much work dairy farmers and, and farmers in general put into their work. And I'm going right. to sound old when I say this, but uh, kids these days can't can't even begin to imagine. No, I say the same thing. I'll be 50 in a couple of weeks, and uh, it's not the same. For the most part, from what I've seen, the same work ethic that we were taught, you know what I mean? It's kind of what can you do for me instead of what can I do for you or how can I help? Yeah. Um, and it's concerning for the future. It really is because you need that work ethic to make society as a whole work. Everybody can't be a freeloader. Everybody can't get a free ride. You know, we don't have to delve into politics here, but somebody's got to pay for it all. And then free money is never free. Somebody's got to cough it up. So somebody's got to move to get stuff done. Right. Right. Uh, all right. I said that was the last one, but I'm actually going to ask one more. And you I don't go know, right in. <laughs> I don't know what your, your answer is going to be here. So a former U.S. Secretary of Defense asked you for a favor. Can oh, you, yeah. And so you tell me what happened there and what the favor was. Or can you? Yeah, sure. Um, so Bill Cohen, a former Clinton sec def, right? Yep. Um, super nice guy. Good guy. It was a sad situation that led to this, the Holocaust shooting. Remember the, the shooting at the Holocaust Museum? Yep. So I was one of the first responders to that. And long story short, his wife was there to put on her play. She had a play she wrote called Anne and Emmett about, you know, Anne Frank and Emmett Till. And um, it, she was supposed to be in the building getting ready for the play. It was going to be the world premiere of the play. Of course, the building was completely locked down. Um, he, uh, I'm trying to remember how exactly it worked. She was outside with me and he was inside and the building was locked down and she, he was waiting on her inside and he, she, he called my cell phone. She gave him my number. She asked me for it and said, this is sec def Bill Cohen. I need you to bring my wife inside the building to me. And I'm like, sir, with all due respect, I'm so very sorry. We're on complete lockdown. No one in or out. We're still sweeping the building for more potential shooters or whatever. We cannot do that right now. I would love to be able to help you. I'm very sorry, but it's got to wait a little while until we clear up. So I kind of BS with her for a while, waiting outside the building there. And um, she linked me up later with him. And then um, we actually got front row center uh, seats to the world premiere of her play. She offered to send a limo. She was really appreciative, even though I didn't was able to help her. I was trying to help her. And um, so the cousin of Emmett Till, who was in the bed with him at the time, is Simeon Wright, 
and um, you see the late Simeon right now. Um, I was seated next to Simeon center stage for the play Anna Nemet that she wrote that she was a, uh, his wife was the former Entertainment Tonight reporter that asked Schwarzenegger some questions she wasn't supposed to but didn't know like they didn't tell her don't ask about his father's you know involvement with whatever right. World War II Germany stuff. Uh, right. So um, yeah, it was just a huge honor. Like that came out of just nowhere. Like you get a call on your cell phone. This is sec def. You know, I want you to bring my wife in here. Sorry, sir, I can't. Next thing you know, you're on the front roads in this place of honor that I don't even deserve for no, you know, no way. But um, it was really cool. Yeah, I don't know like what's cooler telling the sec def you couldn't help help him with his request or who you got to sit next to. Yeah, and he was the nicest guy. Simeon was. We we talked the whole time. We like swapped phone numbers and stuff like that. After just a super cool guy, but the stories he told, like talking to me just right there, about I mean he was in bed with Emmett Till when the mob came and grabbed Emmett Till out the out the uh, bed and lynched him, and that was because he offered to buy a girl in front of the soda parlor, uh, uh, you know, soda pop. I mean, it was insane. just That's insane. insane. Just unbelievable. When are we going to stop as a society seeing things in color and just see people as humans? You know what I mean? Like when? Like this is ridiculous at this point. I, I think a lot of people uh, are, are are very good with everyone. It's it's a, a small subsection of our, our population that uh, is still not gotten to the right place. Yeah, but they make the most noise and get the most attention, don't they? They absolutely do. Uh, yeah. silliness, silliness sells, apparently. Right. Yeah, all right. So I, we asked this question uh, on – on most of these episodes and so you're definitely a, a good person for me to ask this question it's actually my occasional co-host question but i, I like uh using it imagine you're a talk show host for one night one night only you get um three or four guests one male one female uh one musical act uh and if you're into stand-up comedy uh stand-up comedian uh they can be alive or dead they can be famous not so famous they can your show can be heartwarming it can be entertaining it can be thought-provoking it's whatever you want it to be who are your guests wow so i wasn't expecting this question i gotta think about this for a minute no you're um, good it's meant to be thought-provoking <laughs> uh that's interesting um male female music comedian nikola tesla abraham lincoln uh wow I don't even know where to go from there. Like if you want to meet your heroes and have them, I mean, these are people the, that, you know, those two are a great show by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a toughie. I don't even know who else would have thrown that mix there. Um, You're a fan of music. So I'm not a big music person. I mean, I listen to it in the shop and stuff like that, but no, I don't go to concerts and things like that. But uh, hmm. that's about what I'm like. I, I don't go to concerts really. Yeah. Like it's just good background noise for me. Some people like my wife will have her earbuds in all the time and I'm just not that person. I squirrel too easily. My ADHD kicks in and I'm like, you know, focused on that instead of what I'm doing. So <laughs> well, I get it. Um, I yeah, boy, as far as somebody else to it, um, maybe because he was such a pioneer and uh, there was a lot of things about him that were interesting. Henry Ford, me being a car guy and, you know, okay. him being the one that pioneered the assembly line. And he used to do a thing where he would actually just um, lore, but I believe it's supposed to be true. He would take prospective employees to breakfast or lunch or whatever, and then watch to see if they put salt and pepper on their food before they tasted it. Because if they did, he thought that they were making an assumption he wouldn't hire them. You know, if they tasted it first and then seasoned it, he's like, okay, these people are smart. And all. That's just a random thing. But, you know, people like that. Um, I guess they would, a lot like my mom. Oh, really? <laughs> they may not make for the most comedic entertainment value as far, as far as a show. But just like if you're going to call up anybody from the past and just, you know, I'm going to be some interesting people. You know, I'm going to have some really interesting people on the show. So yeah, those are the yeah. names that those are the names that spring to mind for whatever random reasons. Who knows? Do you have a female guest in mind? So, uh, 
Hmm. Um, uh, what is her name that flew across or tried to fly across the Atlantic? Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart. Thank you. I was blanking there for a second. But yeah, I mean, what an inspiration. What an amazing story, right? And, and we still don't know what happened to her, right? We because don't know what happened to her, right? The plane crashed and she drowned. There's been tales of wreckage found and like this science that somebody survived on a island for a while. I think it's all old wives' tales. I don't know how much truth there is to it, but no, we don't have her physical aircraft or anything. But just to be one of those pioneers that did these things, that took that chance, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so amazing. One one in a hundred million guts kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We can all aspire well, to that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. All right. So last thing, tell us about your family. So my family is just as um, um, dysfunctional as, as you can imagine, um, but such a large family. Um, I do have two younger brothers that struggle with abuse issues. Uh, substance abuse issues. And that's difficult for me having been a cop for this long and having tried to intervene in some people's lives. They're in California. Um, one kind of self-medicates and uh, the other has a brain injury that lowers his inhibitions. He had a really severe injury. He's basically dead on the scene of a motorcycle crash. They put him on life support. He was in a coma for like a month. He came back out. He's like 80% now, but I hate seeing them struggle, but they're my brothers and I love them, you know? And um, so it's so weird because like I have a sister that's a realtor and Montana, that's the normal one, basically. And I have another younger sister is in the like, Lake Tahoe area that um, owns her own business and, and very successful. And um, my brother, Sam, is the – and he's another good guest for your show. Um, he is the right hand for celebrity chef Jose Andres, Real okay. Central Kitchen. So right. Sam is the director of emergency operations. He is literally the guy who goes and gets everything started, and then the chef shows up you know, and keeps the ball rolling, and then people you know, come. But he actually gets there first in the time of crisis, like when, when the, uh, the Ukrainian war jumped off here this past spring – he was there on the ground in Ukraine during this wartime, you know, like right off the bat, setting things up in Ukraine, not not Poland, where you think it's going to be safer, but in the war zone in Ukraine. Like he's very courageous. He's got a big heart. This is his life. Like he used to be um, part of the Burning Man scene. He would actually build the Burning Man in the desert, which actually just wrapped up. Right. Yeah. And um, he they, I guess the tsunami in Thailand happened with that, you know, massive oil of water that took out all those, you know, millions of people's homes and everything and just destroyed so much of that country. And he was there with the other burners at the Burning Man, and they were all talking about, like, man, this thing just happened. It's so tragic. I wonder what we can do about it. Let's just go over there and see if we can help. And they went there, and they lived there for a year. Like, he was there for a year just doing volunteer work, helping rebuild homes and stuff like that, and he made that his life. So he started different charities and stuff like that, and um, uh, he's been in Haiti for the earthquake there and Peru for the earthquake there. These are 8.0 earthquakes. These things level. Like, the magnitude – it's not just numerically higher. It's orders of magnitude higher. So it just levels towns and things like that. People lose everything. These are already poor, destitute people. You know, I mean, they don't have much to lose. Um, and he goes and he's just got a big heart and does that full time. And that's like I said, now that he's working for Jose Andres the last few years, um, he's actually just become friends with Ron Howard because Ron Howard just did a documentary on this. It's called We Feed People and it's fantastic. You know, it's like so cool, Sam. Like, you know, you got to meet Ron Howard and now you're like buddies with him. You know, I mean, like I said, they just clicked together, you know. Are your, but, are your parents uh, still around? They are. They're both around. Yeah. My dad's in Nevada and um, my mom is actually um, she's she's in California, but she's in Joshua Tree, like out in the desert. And I yeah. want her to leave California because I think a change of scenery would be good for all of them. And I want her to go to Florida because she just loves Florida. I mean, we had ancestors in Key West and stuff and she used to go there all the time. And that's where she wants to be. But she's in her 70s and she's still working full time as a dermatologist. Um, and she she needs to semi retire and go where she wants to be instead of just, you know, continuing to grind in California because she's not young enough now to do to work as hard as she's been working, you know? And she can do that profession anywhere. She can, and she can do it part-time and just, you know, here and there, but she's so, so committed to her patients. She doesn't want to leave her Joshua tree patients. It's a bunch of older folks and she finds skin cancers and stuff all the time. And that can, you know, save their life when you detect it early. So 
Right. Um, and she's like the the powers that be want her to just quickly process people and get them out and bill, not scan their bodies thoroughly and find these cancers. You know what I mean? It's it's a, it's a number, not a not a person, and that's a problem because we're supposed to be the medical profession is supposed to take care of us and, and help us, and um, not all of her past bosses have been that way. So she just yeah. needs to change the scenery, you know. But uh, yeah, like I said, big dysfunctional family. Um, wouldn't trade them for the world. We've always been close. We're still close. Uh, tell me, you're you're currently married, right? I am married. Been with my wife for 25 years. Yep, she's the love of my life. She's amazing. Coming up on our 24th wedding anniversary, um, she is just she's my rock. I mean, this woman puts up with so much crap. You know what I mean? I'm the guy that goes and spends the mortgage money to buy the next project that we can't afford right then, and then we got to figure out how to make this happen. You know, and uh, she supports me through and through. She tells me she's my biggest fan. You know, I mean, she just she's amazing. She really is. What's your wife's name? Jamie. Jamie. Got yep. it. That's uh, I have a buddy who who listens to these before we publish them and he puts the uh, summary notes out together and he always asks me, make sure you get the spouse's name. Yeah. Yeah. Trust me, this stuff wouldn't happen without her. She's uh, she's also the financially savvy one. She's the smart one. She's the saver. I'm the spender. So she tries to keep me in check. You know, sometimes she loses. Sometimes she she's successful. But uh, <laughs> a good balance. it is a good balance. The yin and the yang. Right. Right, right on. So you're gonna be 50 in a couple of weeks. Uh, so what? The next 25, 30 years, you're just doing speedy cop stuff. My plan is, as long as I can still take a breath and move around, I'll be doing dumb stuff with cars and competing, and that's just what I love. My my goal is to form a YouTube show where I build unique vehicles and then I compete with them in all different motorsports. I've had I've had I've been very blessed, I guess I should say. I've had tremendous success in different kinds of racing, um, endurance road racing. I've been successful. I used to do stadium tough trucks. Like I was saying, Robbie Gordon started this stadium super truck thing, and you've seen them, right? I mean, this, this is this is like perfect for me, this this sport. I want to get into it. I realize 50 is not the age most people get into that kind of a professional racing series. I think it's made for me. I really do. I used to compete at these tough truck competitions and, and monster truck shows, and I've had like promoters tell me I put on the best show of anybody they've ever seen in a tough truck competition. These are guys that do it for a living because I go out there and I ham it up. When you win, you get the freestyle, and I would hit the cars – you get the, the two rows of crushed cars and they put the dirt against them. So I'd be in a little stock samurai and I hit the two, hit the, hit the dirt and go up on two wheels and stuff like that. And the crowd eats it up, you know, cause nobody else is doing that. So um, I get where promoters pay me to come back out because they, I say, I can't afford to stay in the hotel another night. I'm going home. I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to be here tomorrow. The crowd wants to see you again. So um, I've just had a knack, I guess, uh, for wheeling and, and, and um, you know, competing. And uh, I, I don't want to sound boastful. I've just, I've been able to hold my own in a lot of situations and do pretty well. So um I want to continue in that vein. You know, I want to build cool cars, which is my bread and butter. I love it. I just love to fabricate and create and then go out and compete with those cool cars and then turn around and sell them and then go on to the next one and make a show. Up. So that is the plan. Um, you are already uh, very well known in a lot of circles, right? My buddies tease me. Um, they actually, so my brother Sam's in DC one time, quick story. And he's got two young ladies in tow. He's a ladies man. And there's two very lovely young ladies. And we, I meet them in the middle of the night. This is back when we were able to take people in the Washington Monument after hours and give them a private tour stuff, you know, cool stuff. Take them on the roof of Lincoln Memorial and all that. No, that's no longer allowed, but it used to be. And um, so I meet these two young girls. I'm going to give them a private tour of the monument, you know, it's like midnight. And it's, of course, it's closed, so I have to unlock it. I've got my own keys. And they just think it's the coolest thing ever. But as soon as they meet me, they're gushing. And they're like, oh, my God, you have a huge e-penis. And I said, what? Your e-penis is huge. And I've never heard this expression. What does that mean? You have a big online presence. Oh, okay. Well, why'd you just say that? So my teammates thought it was hilarious. So I had E penis, E dash penis on the side of my race helmet for it's still on there. You know, it's been on there for years. It's the running joke. Oh, here's E penis again. Like I'm like E famous. You know what I mean? Like you won't recognize me in a lineup, but um, you'll you'll see my work and you'll be like, oh, I've seen that car before. I've seen that car before. You know, it just pops up in most random places. Like I go to Australia, the literal other side of the planet, and I get there. 
And um, they're talking about how I have this upside down Camaro that I built, you know, three years prior. And they're like, give me the red carpet treatment. I'm like, I don't deserve the red carpet. I'm a nobody. You know, give me the red carpet treatment. Like, we're so honored to have you. I'm like, why? Well, because we've been following your stuff for years. We think you're great. I'm like, what? Like, I'm nobody messing around in my driveway. You've been following me on the other side of the planet here for years. That's the coolest thing. And they, they said, we've been using your upside down Camaro for advertisement for our racetrack here for the last three years. And their boss literally facepalmed. Like, I've never seen a real facepalm before where it wasn't for an act. You know, he's like, you shouldn't have told him that. And I'm like, no, I think that's amazing. Like, here I am screwing out of my driveway for three weeks, three years ago. And you've been using the pictures of that car for advertisements ever since. I've seen it like in Nissan dealer commercials. They don't have rights to it. You know, they just take it off the internet and use it. You can right. go after them, but it's such a losing proposition. But to have your stuff be iconic is really cool. And to have it be copied, I've had a lot of my stuff copied. And that's really cool, I believe. Um, the upside down Camaro was copied with the upside down trucks and vans and stuff. You've seen them around the videos. Um, the airplane car has been copied multiple times, once with even the same model. Uh, the um, sideways van's now been copied over in Europe. Um, it's good to be a trendsetter, I think, right? I mean, good to be original. Hey, you, YouTube channel, and you look to start telling people that the channel's there, I think it explodes, man. I hope so. Speedy Cop, all one word. Look it up, folks. Give me a follow online on social media and stuff like that. I'd really appreciate it. Um, I'm looking for to grow the numbers to support this addiction slash, you know, uh, hobby of mine. It's going to become a business here in a few weeks, and um, I'm really excited about that. I really want it to grow. And um, I believe I have something to offer that's different from the rest. So, you know, like I said, give me a follow online. I appreciate it. Well, if you listen to this uh, episode, I think uh, the listening audience will agree with you. All right. Last <laughs> thing, you, you've raced against John Watts, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Has John ever beaten you? Oh, no. <laughs> John, John um, so my teammates get mad at me sometimes, and I don't mean to dog him because he's a great driver, and he's now got his daughter in a karting, and she is just killing it. I don't know if you guys talked about that because I haven't heard your episode yet, but um, he, he, yeah, he she is really it. getting it, She's, yeah. and I'm loving the videos on social media. But um, my teammates are generally, um, for the most part, in kind of a pack as far as times, and then I'll be like the outlier. And they get frustrated because they are in the same car on the same day trying to do the same things and they can't get there. And what's the seat of the pants feel thing? It's kind of a, an instinct, you know what I mean? And you have to be at 10 tenths, but still controlled enough that you don't go 11 tenths and lose it and crash out. So, and that's a tough balance. And we all make mistakes at times on the track. You know, I've gone four wheels off in a big way in New Zealand in the middle of the night and pouring down rain and a Mustang at hundred miles an hour. and thought I was going to die because it's something that we cobbled together and it's now in New Zealand in the dark. And i trying to power through this what's a sand trap basically to stop the car in a hurry so you don't hit the wall and die at the end of, at the end of turn one there in New Zealand at Hampton Downs and I just kind of rooster tailed it stayed in the gas right up to the edge of the wall powered through the sand because it's so mucky and it's pouring down rain I can't see anything and I go across the wet grass and I get back on track and it, because it's the middle of the night the flaggers didn't see it so if they didn't see it you don't get black flags so it didn't happen so heart pounding like I almost totaled the car and I get back on track I'm waiting for the black flag waiting for the black flag that just didn't happen but I mean, it is, it is kind of a knack thing. Like in that race, I was actually beating Randy Popes and Randy Popes is a legend around the world. The guy owns titles to everything. And can imagine if Corvette wants to set a new track record at Road Atlanta, they call Randy, Randy goes out and sets a new track record. He, he does that routinely. He does the Pikes Peak races. He's a truly legitimate, amazingly good driver. And I've been able to hold my own with him numerous times. So if I can hold my own with those people um, as a hobbyist, you know, if I'm doing it more often, I might even get better. I don't know. Uh, maybe 10 tenths is 10 tenths, but uh, I would like the chance to see, you know what I mean? I mean, and NASCAR guys are drafting 12-year-old karting champs and for looking to groom them for future NASCAR races and stuff like that. They're not looking for 50-year-old washed-up guys like me, but I want to go out there and compete anyway. So I'm thinking You're maybe – fun. I am having fun, yeah. I'm thinking That's maybe awesome. these stadium super trucks is where it's at. 
I gotta talk yeah, to well, Robbie. That and a bunch of other things, man. That you're not yeah. gonna lose yourself to that. You're gonna be doing all kinds of stuff. Exactly, because I just I like doing it all. I've done been successful with dirt track racing and uh, lots of demolition derbies. Um, like I said, road courses, um, drag racing. I did for years and years. I enjoy all this stuff. Anything that has four wheels sounds like anything that has four wheels. I'm, I never got into bike thing. I ride bikes, but I've never got into like motorcycle racing. I've just seen too many people have messed up too badly, and I have just as much fun driving a car. So you know. Yeah. I'm already I'm broken up enough as it is. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like uh, four wheels are not as necessarily safer than two wheels, but right on. Right. Cool. Well, hey, Jeff, uh, awesome, unique story that you have. I really appreciate you joining me. I wish you nothing but the best uh, with YouTube and everything else in general, man. Thanks, Paul. I'm honored that you asked me to come on the show here. I hope your folks enjoyed it. And um, hopefully uh, we can do some good things in the future. Right on. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.